Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. The debrief has a quick ditty on the strange truth behind the toad lickers. And that's toad with a D, to be very fair. (laughs) Does that make it better or worse? (laughs) You know, they both cater to pretty niche audiences. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's some overlap, (laughs) you know, if the internet has taught me anything. But specifically, we are talking about the bufo toad, which also gives off the hallucinogenic called bufo. Because it comes from the bufo frog. If you guys have ever heard about like licking frogs to get high or whatever, this is likely the source. It's real. (laughs) (laughs) One of the newest and most popular drugs currently being experienced, according to the debrief, is called bufo, a toad venom rich in N-N-dimethyltryptamine, which is better known simply as DMT. DMT Mm. tends to be a little bit more familiar with people who follow any of this information, but while Bufo or DMT has become popular recently, it does seem to be catering to a more and more elite circle compared to other drugs. It sounds like something Gwyneth Paltrow would be into. I believe it. (laughs) For sure. I mean, and even if this is a new trend in psychedelics, the active component DMT has actually been used for centuries. It even dates back to pre-Columbian times in South America. It was first synthesized in 1931 by Richard Helmuth Frederick Mansky, a German Mm. chemist, but not yet understood as a psychedelic until 1965. And the way DMT works is that it binds to the serotonin receptors in the brains, which have been shown to improve an individual's mood. And from the data collected, the effects of this drug range from time dilation, sensory distortions, and even a feeling of death. Uh, Mm. Mike Tyson noted that he died during his first trip when he was talking about his use of DMT, quote, in my trips, I've seen that death is beautiful. Mm. Wow. Though it's not Gwyneth Paltrow, Chelsea Handler, the comedian, had a similar experience as Tyson. Quote, I couldn't move and I was like, oh, 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 you're going to pass away today. The comedian stated during her evolution special for HBO Max. Handler and Tyson, of course, are not the only ones feeling this effect, as two different studies from 2018 and 2019 linked DMT to experiencing a near-death feeling. But that's not the only psychic effect you get. Many individuals have reported external entities, specifically, and get ready for this name, machine elves. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's a term that was coined by ethnobotanist Terence McKenna. Others have corroborated this by seeing little beings like gnomes or elves while high. And these experiences lead to questions that the scientists like Dr. Dow hope to answer. Other famous individuals who have tried Bufo include Hunter Biden and Christina (laughs) Hawk, giving this drug a reputation that is for the famous and wealthy only. The real question is, like, are they just taking DMT or are they licking toads? Because to me, those are very different experiences. You've got to really, you know, psych yourself up to lick a toad. It's true. My guess is likely there is a, a handler. 
for the little toads. You know, a dealer. That, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, an intermediary, if you will. Uh, I will handle the toad, so you don't have to. But who knows? Maybe being one with the toad is part of the process if you're yeah. following a certain shaman's method. If that happens to be something you've explored, write back and let us know how it went. Right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from bbc.com. And it's titled, The Jokes That Have Made People Laugh for Thousands of Years. Hmm. So, after months spent poring over medieval texts for her PhD, Martha Bayless made a surprising discovery. She was looking at some of the earliest jokes written in Latin by Catholic scholars, some in excess of a thousand years old. Few had ever been translated into English before, yet many were still funny, and some even made her laugh out loud. <laughs> it's quite the endorsement. Some yeah. were funny, and some even made her laugh out loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after, while waiting for her train, Bayliss was reading a copy of Truly Tasteless Jokes 3, a popular joke anthology from 1983. She was surprised <laughs> to find, almost word for word, a joke that she had been transcribing just a day earlier. Wow. The joke lives up to the truly tasteless promise of the book. This is how it starts in its 1,000-year-old format. Two men were walking along a road talking of this and that. What do you think, says one, which is more fun, defecating or having sex? <laughs> uh, we'll spare you the details, as it is a little rude by today's standards, but it involved seeking the advice of a sex worker. <laughs> okay. So it struck Bayless that the joke had continued to be shared through a spoken culture of joke telling, starting with the Latin text and culminating with her modern joke book without needing to be written down for centuries in between. So it seems there are recognizable features in even the earliest written jokes. National Public Radio NPR in the U.S. suggested in 2016 that the oldest recorded joke is from Bronze Age Sumeria, dating 33 to 1200 B.C. The joke goes, what has never happened since time immemorial? A young wife has not farted on her husband's lap. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> Those Sumerians, <yeah>. man, <laughs> they're a little risque. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, needless to say, this joke would not pack out comedy clubs today, but <laughs> it is striking that the earliest recorded joke is about toilet humor. Bayless, now a director of folklore and public culture at the University of Oregon, has written a number of books on early comedy. She says the earliest jokes were dirty jokes. Flatulence, for example, is funny because it shows our uncontrollable physicality, says Anu Korhonen, a professor of cultural studies from the University of Helsinki in Finland. She adds the role of farts in early jokes was to represent our shared humanity and the equality of people. Flatulence affects everyone. No one can help it. <laughs> It's the lo literally the lowest common denominator. Yeah. <laughs> Some researchers suggest that because humor brings us together, it might have an evolutionary purpose. Perhaps our ability to make light of bad situations helped us to overcome them. Bayless has found that many of the oldest written jokes were scribbled in the margins of ornate early Latin Bibles. Even, <laughs> even in a culture where only academic and religious elites could read and write, Early church scholars were busy entertaining each other with smutty comments. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes in the times of all-powerful medieval monarchs were a risky business. Bayless recounts a story where a joke fell foul of English King Richard I. Two men had been ridiculing the king at a drunken feast. The king was furious and summoned the men. Clearly, disaster was about to befall them, but then one of them answered, We might have said those things, but that was nothing to what we were going to say if the wine hadn't run out. <laughs> 
which I got to say, it takes uh, a good humorist to escape death with more jokes about the jokes you made. Yeah. I mean, you got to figure at that point, though, like they know they're about to die. You might as well go down swinging, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So there is less risk of being dispatched by an angry monarch these days, barring Will Smith. uh, But reading the room. (laughs) Sorry, you can cut that if you want. I just could not resist. Um, It's topical. But reading the room is still an important skill for a comedian. Mm -hmm. McGraw adds, it explains the two ways a joke can fail. That is that it can be too benign and too boring, like a child's knock-knock joke, or it can Mm. be too much of a violation. It highlights how delicate joke telling is because it's easier to fail than it is to succeed. Mm-hmm. So telling jokes is serious business, and it requires <laughs> a strong capacity for understanding the audience. In fact, McGraw suggests that raw intelligence is the most effective indicator for whether someone is funny. And there's an editor's note that says, of course, a comedy writer would say that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the contemporary panic about cancel culture in comedy? For McGraw, this is not such a unique moment in history. As the two jesters from Richard I's court demonstrate, comedy has always been risky, and the power has ultimately always rested with the audience. Mm -hmm. What is wrong and what is okay is determined not by the teller, but by the receiver and by their mood, the context they're in, the number of drinks they've had, their culture, their (laughs) identity, all that. Who knows what audiences thousands of years in the future would think if they unearthed videos of contemporary comedians. Maybe they'll look at the cutting-edge comedy of today and see it much like the Mesopotamian fart joke, lacking in some of the finer cultural details, but with the (laughs) fundamentals that stand the rest of time. Man. There's a TV series that I highly recommend if you're interested in sort of like teasing out cultural differences in comedy. It's called Last One Laughing, and it's basically a game show with comedians that originated in Japan. And the premise is you lock 10 comedians in a room and they're not allowed to laugh and they have to try to make each other laugh. And like if you even crack a smile, you get a warning and you're out and it's like a survivor thing. But they are just going all out, trying desperately to make each other laugh and but not laughing. But the fascinating thing is like, so we originally saw the Japanese version and I'm going to tell you right now, it is weird. The Japanese (laughs) sense of humor is so strange, but it was like. I don't want to say like a train wreck, but like we couldn't stop watching, even though most of the jokes were not landing with us. Mm -hmm. But then they've expanded it. Now there's a French one, an Italian one, a Canadian one, a Spanish one. And like you can see differences in each set of comedians in how they make each other laugh and like which ones we find funny, which is versus which ones we're like, this one is terrible. We're not even watching the second episode. (laughs) I just it's truly, truly fascinating. And the good ones are truly funny from a white lady American perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This next article is from Discover Magazine, and it's called Are Humans the Only Animals That Lie? Mm. And the TLDR here is it depends on how you define a lie, right? You know, everything's Mm. a spectrum. As always, it comes down to where you draw the line. So what they've got here is some examples of animal behavior that might constitute lying. And then they have some experts weighing in on whether it really counts as a lie or not. Hmm. On the probably not end of the spectrum, we have the female bolus spider, who gives off an odor that is an exact replica of the pheromones given off by female moths in order to attract male moth prey. We also have possums who play dead and the horned lizard who shoots blood from its eyes when attacked, even though it isn't actually injured. Whoa. So Greg Bryant, a cognitive scientist at UCLA, says these definitely don't count as lies because they're physiological reactions that the animal isn't really in control of. 
He says biologists make a distinction between functional deception and intentional deception and that there's no evidence the spider knows what she's doing or is choosing to give off this odor instead of another one. It's just a thing she lucked into evolving. Even in the case of the possum, you can scare a possum into playing dead through a number of mechanisms, so it shows the possum isn't really aware of you or what you may think is happening. Its body is just stiffening as a response to certain stimuli. Then there are some more borderline cases, which Bryant says still don't count as lies. For example, a male rooster will sometimes give a food call when there is no food present because it will make the female hens come running And then he can, quote, put the moves on them, as the article says. (laughs) Bryant thinks this is still an instinctive behavior and not an intentional one. But Mark Beckoff, a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, disagrees. He thinks that because the rooster can do the same behavior in different scenarios, it shows a choice is being made. Beckoff says the real question is whether an animal has theory of mind or the awareness that someone else has their own thoughts and isn't privy to the thoughts that you have. He gives the example of how canines will engage in fake fighting as a form of play, and they give certain signals to each other to indicate that's what they're doing, either by a kind of small bowing behavior or giving off little snorts that sound like sneezes. And he says this action itself isn't lying. Of course, it's communicating. But the fact that the dog understands the need to communicate the difference between playfulness and threatening behavior shows that a dog has theory of mind. And therefore, a dog is capable of true lying when it engages in other behavior we might think of as more traditional lying, like, I don't know, pretending they didn't eat an entire roll of toilet paper and you just discovered (laughs) little pieces of it all over the house. Just as an example, you know. Meanwhile, a comparative psychologist named Fumihiro Kano has done an experiment that strongly suggests chimpanzees, bonobos, and orangutans all have theory of mind. The setup of the experiment is honestly a little complicated to explain, but it involves tracking the ape's eyes while a man in an ape suit steals a rock. And there is video of the experiment linked in the article, which I highly recommend. You know, come for the ape suit, stay for the science. But one way or another, you should definitely watch this video. It's hilarious. (laughs) There's also another recent study from researchers at the University of Vienna that involves humans lying to dogs about food being in a place where the dog knows it isn't. Which seems mean, but... (laughs) (laughs) But also kind of funny. (laughs) Yeah. In most cases, the dogs did demonstrate that they understood the human was not telling the truth. This one was especially interesting because it's a modification of an apparently common study setup that has been tested extensively on human toddlers to figure out at what developmental age we learn that people can lie. And the Vienna study noted that of all the dog breeds they tested, terriers were the only ones who, quote, behaved like human infants and trusted the adult even though they had seen the food being moved with their own eyes. Which seems, you know, it seems mean to terriers, but also I'm like, they trust us. You know, it's sweet that they believe us even when they know (laughs) it can't possibly be true. But Greg Bryant isn't interested in any of that. He says even in the most promising studies, no animal has shown a greater theory of mind than a four-year-old child, and we should stop anthropomorphizing them. To which I say, you're a grump, and I don't like you because (laughs) my dog is incredibly emotionally aware, even if she's too dumb not to eat toilet paper. So I think if my dog can smile, she can lie. And she can definitely smile, and I won't be taking arguments about that either. (laughs) Case closed. Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link. The Guardian has a great expose called Crime Against Nature. 
the rise and fall of the world's most notorious succulent thief. Oh, oh. okay. <laughs> Not where I thought that was going. All right. Yeah. I know. They put crime against nature in scare quotes, but no, this was literally a crime against nature. Right. <laughs> Specifically, we are talking about a 46-year-old South Korean named Byung-soo Kim. He is known as, according to the U.S. government, an international succulent trafficker and perhaps the most notorious houseplant poacher in the world. <laughs> I know, it gets giggly, but man, this is a serious article. Hmm. Kim ha had already pled guilty during his sentencing hearing on Zoom from the Santa Ana jail in California. He'd already pled guilty to taking more than 3,700 wild Dudleya plants from California state parks and attempting to export them to South Korea. Quote, if I had known a little bit more about America, if I had known a little bit more about the laws in America, I would not have done this stupid wrongdoing. Hmm. But the American prosecutors yeah. argued that these claims of ignorance were ludicrous because he'd already fled prosecution once, escaping on foot from the U.S. <laughs> into Mexico in 2019. Then he was later arrested in South Africa for illegally harvesting over 2,000 rare succulents, including some that were more than 100 years old. Wow. Kim's attorney wrote in court documents that his client had hoped to use the plants he had taken from other countries to grow succulents on his own farm. Kim had grown up poor and saw rare plants as a way to earn extra money, quote, that he could use to pay for the education of his two girls. Mm -hmm. What is clear, though, is that when Kim flew into LAX from Mexico in October 2018, he and his two assistants, Yungin Bak and Bong Jun Kim, were fully on the radar of California's environmental cops. And I love that they have environmental cops in California, because of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Game wardens of the state's fish and wildlife departments observed Kim renting a minivan, filling it with empty backpacks, plastic bins, and boxes. And then the three men later began a two-day drive up the California coast, filling their backpacks with Dudleya, an attractive local succulent. The wardens waited while Kim, who used the alias Neo, oh. <laughs> obtained documents to have the Southern California nursery legally export 259 pounds of Dudleya. And he claimed all the plants had originated in San Diego. They waited when the men transported dozens of plant boxes to an export facility in Compton. And then, as they, Kim and the compatriots tried to drive away, the wardens made the arrests. The boxes Kim had tried to export contained over 600 pounds of succulents, or nearly 4,000 individual plants, which were more than double what the export documents described. Mm. And the public response was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, usually poaching enforcement can get some negative reactions, but when it came to succulents, quote, People were furious. <laughs> wow. And it probably helped that the plants that were being taken were popular with widespread name recognition. Their common name, Live Forevers, is said to have been given to them by 19th century European naturalists who were shocked to find samples of the plant still alive after months-long ocean voyages. Huh. So the wardens found allies in California environmentalists who passed along tips, identified poached plants, and served as expert witnesses. Ultimately, Kim and his assistants were charged with conspiracy and with violating a California law against destruction or removal of plant material on public land. Wardens estimate the stolen Dudleya were worth about mm, $600,000 on the South Jeez. Korean market. Yeah. And in May 2019, when Kim learned about the federal charges, he fled. His passport had been confiscated, but he went to the South Korean embassy in LA, said he lost his passport, 
and got a new one. After that, he crossed the border with Mexico on foot and from there flew to China and back to South Korea. The U.S. prosecutors have asked that Kim be sentenced to three years in prison as a deterrent largely to other mm. smugglers. Kim's attorney is arguing that he's suffered enough. He did contract COVID-19 in prison. He did get assaulted by another inmate, which left him with his jaw wired shut. And Whoa. So yeah, he hasn't been having a really good time here, but he is now facing two additional cases in state court, one for the original succulent thefts, and then one for fleeing the country during that prosecution. Oops. Yeah, <laughs> they tend to frown on that as well. Yeah, I look forward to the heist series on succulent poaching that is inevitably to hit the airwaves. Absolutely. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from Motherboard by Vice, and it's titled "The Dyatlov Pass Mystery May Have Just Been Solved by New Video Evidence." Ooh, is this that Russian not an avalanche situation? Uh huh. Yep, that's the one. All right. So I know nothing about it. Tell me. <laughs> okay, so if you're not familiar with the Dyatlov Pass story, this is about the mysterious deaths of nine Russian hikers more than 60 years ago, which defied explanation and inspired conspiracy theories for decades because of the puzzling huh. condition of the bodies. Scattered with severe injuries and some were unclothed and the absence of a clear-cut cause of death. <gasps> Oh, I don't know if I've heard about this one, but I've heard about stuff like this where it's like they're saying, oh, this might be evidence of Bigfoot or something because it's like <laughs> these people were all clearly attacked, not mm -hmm. just dying from too cold or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And it's not okay. And it's not okay. like the family uh, whose name I'm blanking on, but the one that all ate themselves in the winter. That's a different one. <laughs> oh, the Donner Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Donner Party. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they ate each other, not themselves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Both events do start with D's, so, you know. Right, right. But anyways, uh, so now a pair of scientists based in Switzerland have presented video evidence collected on site that bolsters the idea that the tragedy known as the Dyatlov Pass incident occurred due to a slab avalanche, which is a special type of deadly snowslide that can strike on low-angled slopes. Alexander Puzrin, a professor of geotechnical engineering at ETH Zurich, and Johan Gaum, head of the Snow and Avalanche Simulation Laboratory at Ecole Polytechnique, first pinpointed a slab avalanche as the potential cause of the deaths in a study published in 2021. The intense media coverage of that research, combined with equally passionate pushback from skeptics, inspired the researchers to follow up on their hypothesis with trips to Dyatlov Pass, which is named after Igor Dyatlov, the lead mountaineer that died on the route. The latest hmm. of these trips took place just two months ago in dangerous conditions similar to those the night of the incident and resulted in the first video evidence of recent slab avalanches on the pass. The new research demonstrates that slab avalanches occur in the same region and under similar weather conditions to those experienced by Dyatlov and his companions on that fatal night of February 1st, 1959. And though avalanches have long been discussed as a possible cause of death for the group, Questions have been raised about the odd injuries on the bodies, which were found in various locations downslope from where they had pitched their tent. Four of the hikers had severe chest or skull injuries, two were missing eyes, one had lost a tongue, Ooh. and Ooh. some were naked. What? Those are some a la carte weird uh, injuries. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hence why this case had captivated people's imaginations for a long time. Yeah. The eerie nature of the corpses has led to their deaths being variously attributed to an infrasound-induced panic, <laughs> attacks by yetis or local tribesmen, catabatic winds, a romantic dispute, nope. <laughs> KGB slash CIA secret activities, 
ballistic rockets, or nuclear weapons tests, according Yikes. to the new study. So, I mean, that's a pretty broad range of could have been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cover all the bases and you might be right eventually. Yeah. <laughs> In their 2021 study, Puzrin and Gom argued that slab avalanches could provide an answer to the mystery while satisfying most of the oddities surrounding the deaths. Slab avalanches happen when a slab-like layer of snow is positioned on top of a weaker layer, creating dangerously pent-up pressure that can be released by a relatively small trigger. The researchers suggested that the pitching of the tent might have set off a fatal chain of events that eventually led to a slab falling on the sleeping hikers, causing severe trauma in some of them, and prompting the rest to run into the night without proper gear, where they ultimately succumbed to the cold. In addition to the recent video evidence, the new study presents results from expeditions in the winter and summer of 2021 that counters claims that the slopes of Dyatlov Pass are not angled enough for avalanches. The summer trip revealed that the terrain is covered in natural step-like drops on meter scales that could produce a slab avalanche, even though the broader slope appears deceptively safe under snow cover. These hidden Mm. features may have contributed to the experienced group's false sense of security in their camp location. The study notes, the steps have inclinations exceeding 28 degrees and many slopes are even steeper than 30 degrees. What's more, these slopes are not just local, they are continuous. No matter where you pitch your tent, you're likely to be below one of them. Though Puzrin and Gaum stop short of claiming that the mystery has been solved, they end their study with a sphinx-like statement, Although the case itself remains open, our part is closed. We did not want to spend the rest of our lives trying to solve the Dyatlov Pass mystery. One year later, we are no longer so sure. If someone asks, we will refrain from an answer. Mm-hmm. Which is very sphinx-like indeed. It's confusing. It's almost as if they're saying, maybe it wasn't the thing we just said it was. I don't know. <laughs> very strange. I mean, of all the things that gets me, it's the fact that some of them were naked. Because even when they're like, oh, they ran out of their tent and tried to escape and got caught. Like, who sleeps naked? I just That's yeah. not what you do when you're hiking through snow. You're still sleeping in clothing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, maybe you know. they were adventurous and they were adventurous. You know? <laughs> you know? Oh, maybe there were multiple people in a tent, you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would rule it out. You know, maybe you have this slighty avalanche and a romantic situation. Why not both? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. This article is from Psychology Today, and it's called To Learn Better make mistakes. Hmm. So this is based on a new study from the Journal of Educational Psychology, which set out to both confirm and clarify something known as the daring effect, which is that when you are learning something, say you're taking notes, if you write down a deliberate mistake and then correct that mistake, you are more likely to remember the correct answer than if you had just written it down in the first place. Hmm. So in the first experiment, researchers Wong and Lim gave an informational reading passage to 120 college students. A third of those students were asked to simply copy the text by hand and underline key concepts that they thought it would be important to remember. The next third was told to use a form of note-taking called a concept map, where key ideas are related to each other visually using nodes and arrows. And the last group was told to use the concept error approach, where they had to copy each sentence but introduce a plausible error into each one before crossing out that error and finishing the sentence as it was written. So, for example, if the sentence read, bats are mammals that can fly, they could write, bats are birds, strike through, mammals that can fly. Hmm. They were also given a second piece of reading, which they couldn't take any notes on. They just had to try to remember what they could. 
and then they were tested on how well they recalled both of the two passages. And as we probably understand by now, the students who wrote the wrong thing and then the right thing remembered far more about their passages than the students who used a concept map or those who copied it verbatim. But mm. the really interesting thing, and this is why they gave them a second passage to read without taking notes, is that while they were quizzing them, they didn't tell them along the way whether they got the right answers. They just asked and took the answer. And when they were done, they asked the students to rate how successful they thought their learning method was compared to just reading. Students who used the two normal methods of studying felt like they did better with them, and they did, slightly. But the students who used the weird new technique assumed they did worse, even though they not only did better, they did more better than their classmates who were using the normal methods. Hmm. Huh. So Wong and Lim did a second experiment where they tried to nail down the exact nature of the daring effect. In this case, they had 40 participants do the same concept error technique as before, but then had them all do it again with a different passage using a concept synonym technique, where the error they crossed out was also correct, just with a different wording than the sentence they ultimately copied. The example they gave them was the sentence, magmas that are low in silica tend to be very fluid, where they might write, magmas that are low in silica tend to flow very easily, then cross out flow very easily and write be very fluid. Hmm. And again, the error technique led to better scores on the quiz, and the students wrongly predicted that the concept synonym strategy had been more effective even after their actual test performance revealed otherwise. What? Yeah. People are just like, this is stupid. It can't possibly work, is basically <laughs> what's happening. Another big takeaway from the experiment was that the more plausible the error that the student made and crossed out, the more likely they were to remember the real answer. So, for example, if you were trying to learn the fact an apple is a fruit, then you should cross out an apple is a vegetable rather than an apple is an animal. Mm. Because in your brain, somehow, you might think it's a vegetable, but you're definitely going to know it's not an animal. Hmm. So... That's kind of it. Hopefully all this is helpful to someone out there. I know I'm at that point in my life where I don't have to memorize things anymore, and I'm very happy about that. But if I were, this sounds like something I would try just because it seems so counterintuitive. It apparently works. Yeah. I don't know. I could see this working in, in different lesson plans for teachers as well, like demonstrating something on the chalkboard, crossing it out, and then writing mm -hmm. the correct one to have sort of that before and after. Right. Well, and like you can imagine the students might be just furious at the teacher for constantly putting the wrong answer and then the right yeah. answer. Mm -hmm. Like you could, I, I could absolutely see a mutiny where they would be like, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> teacher, you're fired. They hate you. Right? <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Good news from Brain Tomorrow. A nasal spray could prevent Alzheimer's disease and brain inflammation. Mm. Huh. I know, right? A nasal spray containing specialized fatty acids successfully stopped memory loss and brain degeneration in an experimental model of Alzheimer's, the most common form of dementia in older adults. They explain that undoing inflammation is not as easy as we'd like it to be, right? It takes mediators, cell subtypes, and specifically cell communications, which order the body's protective mechanisms to turn on, are necessary. This silences pro-inflammatory signaling pathways in the body, and the team notes that NPD1 is one of the lipid mediators which protects the brain. The partnership between LSU and the Karolinska Institute is also looking into the unique signals in the cerebral spinal fluid, which protect the brain from dementia onset. According to the Alzheimer's Association, one in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia, and that's wow. more than the number of deaths due to breast and prostate cancer combined. 
and any of you as my co-hosts or any listeners have ever had experience, Alzheimer's definitely takes a tremendous toll, not just on the patients, but their families as well, because yeah. it's a progressive disease. Mm -hmm. It's got really devastating adverse effects. This would be a huge development, especially intranasal, like yeah. it's a nose spray. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, well, I think one of the things a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of unless they've experienced it in their family is like you think of Alzheimer's as like, oh, they forget who you are. But there's a lot of steps on the way to that where, like, you start getting emotional dysregulation mm -hmm. where they not only don't recognize you, they think you're an intruder and they attack you. Or, like, like there's mm -hmm. other stuff that's really, really difficult to deal with mm -hmm. from this person who, you know, you love and used to know who you are. It's really yeah. very terrifying. So, yeah, I had no idea almost one in three were yeah. suffering from it. But, I mean, that's incredible. Well, specifically, it's one in three seniors dies with them. So it oh, can be a comorbidity or things like that. They may be in early stages. I got it. Yeah, exactly. But it's still a tremendous amount of people. So it's, yeah. it's a big problem getting bigger. And uh, intranasal spray could be a real helper. And, you know, you can put other stuff in there. Like, make it your sinus <laughs> med, but slip in the anti-Alzheimer's <laughs> med as well. You know? Yeah. Now with Bufo. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm done. But then you don't know if the machine L are a result of the Alzheimer's? Or <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The People Who Draw Rocks, The Parable of the World's Largest Bee, and The Beetle Who Got Away. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.